And with that, please make sure you have your Bibles on hand as we dive into God's Word together today. This is one of my favorite parts of the service, the time where we get to open God's Word and hear what He has to say to us today. Right here where we are, uh, God has a special, important Word for us today. And so we're in Revelation chapter 2. We're going to be continuing our new message series that we're calling The Seven Churches of Revelation. Today we're going to look at the second of those seven churches, the the Church of Jesus Christ in Smyrna. Well, in the first century, as I mentioned last Sunday, the city of Ephesus was the most important Roman city in the province of Asia, in uh, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And I, I shared that with you last week. We'll put this map up for you. Ephesus was church number one we looked at, and it was the most important city in Asia Minor. But as we look at the second city, about 35 miles to the north of Ephesus, the second city of Smyrna, we're going to see it wasn't the most important city, but it was really a close second. It was a really strategic and important city in the Roman Empire in the days of John the Apostle, who wrote the book of Revelation. Sometime around 600 B.C., the city of Smyrna had been destroyed. And so it laid in ruins for about 300 years and round about 300 B.C., the city was reconstructed and it came back with a vengeance. You see, it was one of the few ancient cities that had a master plan to its building. And so as we put a, an image up on the screen here for you, uh, this is an artist's depiction of what it would have looked like when John wrote the book of Revelation. Up on the hillside, it was a mountain by the name of Mount uh, Pagos. Uh, this is the, the vantage point we're getting up about halfway up Mount Pagos, looking down toward the bay. As you can see, it had this beautiful uh, bay uh, that connected with the Aegean Sea, had a beautiful harbor that was sheltered by the land surrounding it. And so if Ephesus was like the New York City of the ancient world, Smyrna was kind of like the Acapulco of the ancient world. It was probably the most gorgeous, most beautiful city in all the Roman Empire. As it was built with this master plan, it was built with large, wide, paved streets, which most cities didn't have back then. The buildings were all strategically placed in a, in a place that made the most sense for the city. And if you were out there in the bay looking back toward Mount Pagos, you would see that wrapped around the base of Mount Pagos was a tiered system of buildings wrapping around the hillside, making it look like a crown. And so it was a gorgeous, gorgeous city. And the residents of ancient Smyrna, they knew that it was a gorgeous city. There was a lot of pride in their community. There was a lot of pride in their city. And there was a lot of patriotism for the Roman Empire there in the city of Smyrna. They were very loyal supporters of the Roman emperor. And so there in that city was the temple to the goddess Roma. Uh, Roma was the goddess from which Rome took its name. And so they took great pride in honoring Rome and the goddess of Rome, Roma. And they took great pride in worshiping the emperor of Rome, whoever happened to be on the throne at the time. Emperor worship was very important to the people of Smyrna. In fact, uh, they thought that was their patriotic duty to worship the sitting emperor of their empire. And so when someone didn't worship the emperor there in Smyrna, 
they took that as an act of defiance against Rome, and they took it personally. It was an act of, uh, that was very unpatriotic. And so they would begin to discriminate against those who refused to worship the emperor. Uh, sometimes they were kicked out of the local trade guilds, leaving uh, those individuals unemployed. Uh, at other times, they had their property confiscated uh, by the authorities there in Smyrna. And then even in the marketplace, if you refuse to worship the emperor, uh, there are many vendors that wouldn't even sell food to you. And so starvation was a real reality for those who refused to worship the emperor. Now, there was one group of people there in Smyrna who was given a free pass when it came to emperor worship, and that was the people who were Jewish. Uh, The Jewish people were not required to worship the emperor because the emperor recognized Judaism as a legitimate religion that was monotheistic. He knew they only worshipped Yahweh, and so they were given a free pass. And so the Jews that lived in the city of Smyrna, they were still able to buy food in the marketplace. They were still able to join the trade guilds so they could have employment. They were still able to buy homes. They were able to do all of this because they were given a free pass. But Christians weren't so fortunate. Christianity wasn't recognized as as a legitimate religion in Rome. And remember, the emperor Domitian hated Christians. So as you might imagine, being a Christian in the city of Smyrna during the reign of Emperor Domitian was really, really hard. With that in mind, let's take a closer look at Jesus's letter to the second of the seven churches of Asia, the church in Smyrna. And so we're in Revelation chapter two, beginning in verse eight. Once again, Revelation two, beginning in verse eight. This is how God's word reads to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Right. These are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. May God bless us as we read and study his word today. Remember that Jesus begins each of his letters to the seven churches by addressing them to the angel of that particular church. And we've talked about over the last couple Sundays that in all likelihood, angel, since that word literally means messenger, in all likelihood, Jesus is addressing the lead pastor or the lead elders of each of these individual churches. And so here Jesus in all likelihood is addressing the lead pastor elders of the church in Smyrna. And one of those church leaders at the time this letter was written was most likely a man by the name of Polycarp. I want you to remember Polycarp's name because we're going to talk about him a little bit later in the message today. I want you to take another look at the second half of verse one. I want you to see how Jesus describes himself at the top of this letter to the church at Smyrna. He says, these are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. 
As he does so often in these letters to the seven churches, uh, Jesus pulls from some of the descriptions of him that were given back in chapter one. So here in verse eight, Jesus repeats the description that was given of him back in chapter one, verses 17 and 18. Jesus begins by identifying himself as the first and the last. Well, what does that mean? The first and the last, it means the same as the alpha and the Omega, both of those titles of Jesus, first and last, and Alpha and Omega, emphasize Jesus's eternal existence. He has no beginning and no end. He exists eternally as God. That makes sense, right? Jesus exists eternally as God. And notice Jesus's second title at the end of verse eight. He is the one who died and came to life again. Now, do you suppose there is a reason why Jesus identified himself this way to the Christians in the city of Smyrna? And of course, the answer is absolutely. Jesus, when he gives a title or a name for himself or a description of himself, it's always very strategic. There's always a reason for it why he gives that title or that description to that group of people at that specific point in time. So Jesus here is saying something that would have been very meaningful to the Christians there in the city of Smyrna. I believe Jesus describes himself this way to the Smyrna Christians because of Smyrna's history. After Smyrna, remember, was conquered around 600 B.C., it laid in ruins for 300 years. And Jesus, when he was crucified on the cross and died... Remember, he lay in a tomb dead for three days. And so it's as if Jesus is saying this to the followers of Christ in Smyrna. It's as if he's saying, followers of Christ, you are surrounded by people who take great pride in their city that was raised from the ashes. But you can take greater pride in your Savior and Lord who was raised from the dead. Amen. You see how that could be so meaningful to those Christians living in that city at that point in time. Now, let's move on to verse 9. As I mentioned last week, Jesus tends to follow a three-point outline as he gives little letters to each of these seven churches. Normally, he starts after identifying himself by one of those titles given in chapter 1. Jesus, normally right after that, will give the church some praise. Number two, he will rebuke them for something they did wrong if there was something to rebuke. And number three, Jesus will make a promise to the church. He follows this three-point outline with most of these letters to the seven churches. He praises, he rebukes, and then he offers the church a promise. Well, interestingly, Jesus doesn't follow this three-point outline in his letter to the church at Smyrna. Jesus praises them in verses 9 and 10. And he makes them a couple promises at the tail end of verse 10 and also in verse 11. But you'll notice as you read these four verses, there's not a single rebuke. Jesus doesn't call them out for anything they've done wrong. He doesn't point out any sin from which they need to repent. So there are only two of these seven churches here in Revelation that Jesus doesn't rebuke. Smyrna is one of them. If you're curious, the other one's over in chapter 3. It's the church at Philadelphia. These are the only two churches that Jesus doesn't rebuke for something. 
So I think it's safe to say the church at Smyrna is a model church. Once again, Jesus doesn't rebuke them for anything. So it's a model church and we should pay careful attention to what this church does right. This church does a whole lot of things right. And unlike the Christians in Ephesus, whose love for God had grown cold, there's nothing these Smyrna Christians are doing that is glaringly wrong. Let's take a closer look at Jesus's praises of the church in verses nine and ten. Let's start in verse nine. Jesus praises the Smyrna Christians. We'll put this on the screen for you. He praises the Smyrna Christians for their endurance. Specifically, they have endured three things, afflictions, poverty and slander. If you're taking notes, I encourage you to write those three down. They are enduring these three things, afflictions, poverty and slander. So let's take a look at each of these. Let's start with their endurance of afflictions. This word afflictions is a really interesting word. It's a translation of a Greek word that literally means this. We'll go to this next slide here. This word afflictions. It's not up there. yet. I'll go ahead and read it for you. This word afflictions is a translation of an interesting Greek word that refers to an outside pressure which threatens to ruin. And it's also a burden that crushes. It's a burden that crushes. And so, as you probably know, there's a reason why our founding fathers, when they came up with the Eighth Amendment to the Constitution, why they came up with that amendment that outlaws any cruel and unusual punishment. Okay, so that goes all the way back to 1791. So just 15 years after the Liberty Bell rang in 1776, they ratified that eighth commandment that says we forbid in the United States of America any cruel or unusual punishment. You see, our founding fathers understood that over the course of human history, uh, different governments have dreamed up all sorts of cruel and, and ruthless ways to torture prisoners. And in a free country uh, that valued liberty and placed itself under God, they wanted nothing to do with torture. They wanted nothing to do with cruel and unusual punishment. Well, one of these cruel and unusual punishments that was developed uh, several thousand years ago, you could call crushing. Uh, this is something that sometimes they did in ancient Rome. This particular depiction uh, shows some men dressed in more of colonial garb. So uh, this was much later than the period we're talking about here in Smyrna. But it gives us an idea of what crushing involved. Uh, the person was placed on their back on a flat surface, usually on the floor, and then oftentimes a, a, a sheet of wood or, or something flat was laid on top of their chest, and then they began to place weights on top of that person's chest. And so they would add some weight and it would be uncomfortable. They would add some more weight and become more uncomfortable. And they would keep adding weight until eventually that person's chest was being crushed so much they couldn't breathe. And so they suffocated because of that weight on their chest. This is definitely torture. It's definitely cruel and unusual punishment. And this is the word that Jesus uses here that's translated as afflictions. Some translations in English, it's translated as tribulations there in verse nine. And so isn't that interesting? Jesus uses this word. 
Jesus talks about these suffocating afflictions that the the Smyrna Christians were dealing with. They were being persecuted to such a large extent that it was as if they were being suffocated. It's safe to say that Christians were being persecuted in all seven cities that are that are addressed here in Revelation chapters two and three. But of all those seven cities, it's safe to say, I believe the Christians were being persecuted the worst in the town of Smyrna. So Jesus is not oblivious to what they're going through. Notice what it says there that Jesus knows. I know, he says, what you are experiencing. And so that brings me great comfort. He's not oblivious to our pain and suffering. He knows what we're going through and he knows what it feels like. If you were to go over to Isaiah chapter 53 and look at verses three and four, you'd read these encouraging words. Jesus was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. Now, don't miss that last word. Jesus was afflicted. Didn't we come across that word in chapter two of Revelation? We sure did. That's the word Jesus uses. Now, this word afflicted in Isaiah 53 is a translation of a Hebrew word. So it's not the exact same word in Greek that Jesus is using to the church at Smyrna, but it's a related word. Jesus knows affliction. And so he's saying to those Smyrna Christians, I know your afflictions. When he says that, he means it. He knows what they're going through, not just because he sees it, but because he has personally experienced it. He's been in their shoes. He's felt the crushing weight of persecution for the sake of the gospel. And he says the same to you and me today. In whatever ways you're feeling the crushing weight of abuse because of your faith, Jesus knows about it. Jesus sees it. And Jesus knows what it feels like because Jesus has been there. Can you take hold of that truth today? He sees what you're going through And he understands it personally because he's been there. According to verse 9, the Smyrna Christians not only endured afflictions, they also endured poverty. They endured poverty. Now, interestingly, there are a couple different Greek words uh, for poverty. Uh, One is penia. Uh, Pania, that first word you see there on the last line of the slide, that word pania refers to someone who is just barely getting by. Uh, they've got no excess. They just barely have enough money to put food on the table and to keep a roof over their head. That person's poor. They've got no extra uh, for any luxuries. The second word in Greek is pachoia or pachea. And this word, pachea, refers to someone who is dirt poor. Someone that's this kind of poor doesn't even have enough money to buy food. They don't have enough money to pay the bills. They are literally dirt poor. They don't have two pennies to rub together. Guess which of these two words Jesus uses here in reference to the Christians in Smyrna? You probably guessed it. It's the second of these two words. These Christians in Smyrna were pachoia poor. And I'm pronouncing that terribly, by the way. Please excuse me if you speak Greek. (laughs) These Christians, they had nothing. 
They had nothing. Under the persecution of Emperor Domitian, these Christians had their homes and their property confiscated. They had lost their jobs when they were kicked out of the local trade guilds. Many Bible scholars believe that those Christians there in Smyrna even had their smaller possessions confiscated because bottom line, Christianity was outlawed in Smyrna. It was illegal. And so the Jews and also the uh, the Romans could come and snatch things out of Christians hands and get away with it because who is going to come to the Christians defense? It's an illegal belief system. It's an illegal religion. And so many Bible scholars believe even their small possessions were stolen from them because no one would come to their defense. As poor as you think you are, I guarantee you, you're not as poor as these Christians in Smyrna were. They were dirt poor, which makes it all the more remarkable that Jesus tells them in verse nine, you are rich. Isn't that an odd thing for Jesus to say? You are rich. That's odd. These guys couldn't rub two dimes together. Why would Jesus say they're rich? Think about it. We don't tell people who are sick and on their deathbed, hey, you're really healthy. We don't do that, do we? Uh, We don't tell people who are morbidly obese, uh, you look like you could be a personal trainer. Uh, You look like you could uh, run the 100-yard dash in uh, in the Olympic Games. We don't tell people that, and we don't tell people who are dirt poor that they are wealthy. But Jesus does here. He calls them rich. And why does Jesus do that? Because Jesus isn't as shallow as you and I are. Jesus thinks much more deeply over in second Corinthians, chapter six, verse 10. The Apostle Paul says something that I think is really interesting. He says in verse 10 of second Corinthians six that we are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. We are poor, yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. Think of that. Paul says we have nothing But in reality, we possess everything. What a remarkable thing to say. How is it possible for Paul and his fellow missionaries to be dirt poor yet rich at the same time? How is it possible for them to have nothing and yet possess everything? And the short and sweet answer goes like this. Because they had Jesus. Amen. They had Jesus. Anyone who has Jesus is rich. Congratulations. If you have Jesus, you're rich. You have forgiveness and grace and love and eternal salvation and adoption into God's family and peace and purpose and joy. All of these riches and so many others are ours in Christ. And to that that I say, thank you, Jesus. All of these priceless treasures are ours in Christ. Pastor Joe Stowell tells the story of a missionary trip he took years ago to Russia. And he met up with a friend there in Russia one day. And his friend said, hey, let's go visit my mom. And so Joe Stoll and his friend there in Russia drove down a road. And then they turned onto a smaller road. And from the smaller road, they went down that a while. And then they turned onto an even smaller dirt road. And they went down this bumpy dirt road for several miles and ended up in the middle of nowhere at this little shanty town with shacks on both sides of the dirt road. 
And they pulled up their car in front of one of those shacks and they started to get out of the car and a lady came running out of that shack. It was his friend's mom. And she was just gleaming from ear to ear. She was so, so excited. She invited them into her little shanty. And as they went in, Pastor Joe noticed out in front of her house was a pig. And he asked his friend about it. His friend said, well, yeah, she's raising it in the summer and then she'll slaughter it. So she'll have something to eat in the winter. They went into this house. There was a tiny little table beat up, barely a chair to sit on. This woman had nothing. And Joe Stoll was blown away because this woman was gleaming from ear to ear. And she couldn't stop talking about Jesus. She couldn't stop talking about how good Jesus was and how faithful Jesus was and how much she was looking forward to going to heaven someday to be forever and ever with Jesus. And so Joe Stoll was listening to her and he thought to himself, all this woman has is Jesus, but that makes her very rich. And then Pastor Joe had this second thought. Huh. Back in America, we have so much compared to this woman. We are so rich. I wonder if we're so rich that we don't think we need Jesus. Maybe this woman has it right. Have little on this earth and you just cling to Jesus. As far as material possessions go, the Smyrna Christians had nothing. But they actually had the greatest mother load of treasure that money can't buy. They had Jesus. So Jesus turns to them in verse 9 and says, You are rich. According to verse 9, the Smyrna Christians not only endured afflictions, they not only endured poverty, They also endured slander, particularly slander from those who called themselves Jews. Jesus calls them a synagogue of Satan there. The city of Smyrna, you see, had a lot of Jews living in that town. And since Judaism was recognized by Rome as a legitimate religion, Jews had it pretty good in Smyrna. As I mentioned earlier, they didn't have to worship the emperor so they could join the trade guilds and find work. They could buy food. They could buy houses. They could pretty much do whatever they wanted to do in that town of Smyrna. But not the Christians. The Jews in Smyrna had it pretty good, but it seems that they practice a convenient self-serving form of Judaism. They only practice their religion to the extent that it made their lives easier while ignoring the most important parts of Judaism like mercy and kindness and, oh, I don't know, love your neighbor as yourself. They didn't pay attention to those things because the Jews were some of the most wretched persecutors of Christians in John's day, at least in the city of Smyrna. The Jews jumped on the bandwagon there in Smyrna and they slandered Christians' good names. In those days, the Christians called their communion times love feasts because They rightly saw Jesus' sacrifice on the cross as the greatest act of love in the history of the world. So when they were going to take communion together and have a communion service, they'd call it a love feast. Well, the Jews grabbed that title and they started spreading this slander, saying that uh, Christians were having these wild orgies in their worship service. They were having these love feasts marked by these orgies. And they went as far as to say they're they're taking uh, human flesh and eating it. And they're taking human blood and drinking it when they take this Lord's Supper together. They're eating real flesh and they're drinking real human blood. 
And so they were spreading these lies and this slander about Christians saying that they were cannibals. And in response, Jesus calls the Jews there in the city of Smyrna, a synagogue of Satan. Notice that in verse nine, a synagogue of Satan. Why does he call them that? Because Satan is a liar, right? And he's the father of lies. And Satan is a slanderer. And he's the father of slander. So Jesus calls him like he sees him. If you walk like a duck and you talk like a duck, you're probably a duck. And if your church or your synagogue lies like Satan and slanders like Satan, then it's a synagogue of Satan. Notice what it says in verse 10. There in verse 10, Jesus offers the Smyrna Christians one more praise. He praises them for the more intense persecution they're about to endure. So he's praised them for enduring afflictions. He's praised them for enduring poverty. He's praised them for enduring slander. And now he praises them for a fourth thing. He praises them for what they are about to endure, which will be more intense persecution than anything they had experienced up to this point. Well, 10 days, he says there, let me just read the verse for you again. Verse 10, you can see it there in your Bibles. Jesus says, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death. 10 days is a metaphor for a limited period of time. There's going to be a limited period of time in the not too distant future when the people in Smyrna, the Christians in Smyrna, were going to be persecuted in a more intense way than anything they'd ever experienced before. And so it's as if Jesus is saying this to the Christians in Smyrna. He's saying, Christians, you've already endured a whole lot of affliction and poverty and slander for my name. But I've got to tell you, the suffering has only just begun. In fact, it's going to get worse. More of you will suffer and be arrested and die. But I'll let you in on a little secret. When the heat gets turned up, you will be courageous. You will pass the test of your faith and you will be faithful. To the very end. Amen. And history records for us what happened to the Christians in Smyrna in the years that followed this letter being delivered to them. History records what happened in Smyrna over the next hundred years. We know that many of the Christians in Smyrna were persecuted. Many of them were arrested. Many of them were thrown to the wild beasts in the arena to be torn to pieces. Many of them were burned at the stake because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And the most famous of those martyrs who died for their faith was the lead pastor of the church at Smyrna in the mid-2nd century, a man by the name of Polycarp, the one I mentioned to you earlier. Polycarp was the lead pastor of that church in Smyrna about 50 years after this letter was written to the church in Smyrna. And so there Polycarp was, by the time the mid part of the second century rolled around, he was in his late 80s. You see, as a young man, he had been an apprentice of the Apostle John. And John had groomed him and taught him all that he knew and and had taught him how to be a, a faithful and effective pastor there in that city of Smyrna. And so by the time the mid part of the second century rolled around, Polycarp was most likely the only man still alive on earth 
who had been personally groomed and discipled by one of Jesus's original 12 apostles. He had been groomed by John. And so he was lifted up as a great leader in the second century Christian church. Throughout not only Asia Minor, but throughout the world, Polycarp was revered and honored as a faithful teacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And those critics of Christians in Smyrna, they knew that Polycarp was a faithful leader. And so they were determined to kill him. Well, some of the details are disputed, but as best as I understand it, here's what happened. It was the year 155 A.D., the month of February. Polycarp had a dream. And in that dream, he dreamed that his pillow was on fire. And so the next day he told some of his Christian friends that he interpreted that to mean that God was warning him that in just a few days he would be burned at the stake. Well, several days passed and there was a knock at his door. He had been warned that soldiers were coming to arrest him. And when the soldiers arrived, it was dinner time. And instead of just exiting the house with those soldiers, he invited the soldiers in and asked them to stay for dinner. And these soldiers were shocked because the proconsul had sent them to arrest Polycarp and they knew full well that he was going to most likely be killed within the next 24 hours and burned at the stake. But Polycarp wasn't upset. He wasn't worried. He was smiling and he was gleeful as he invited them in and served them dinner. And he asked, may I have one favor? Would it be okay if I pray by myself for an hour? I want to spend an hour in prayer. And they granted him permission. So as they were eating, he went off and he prayed for an hour. And after that hour, he came and submitted himself to the arrest. Well, by this point, they really didn't want to arrest him, but they did follow orders. They took Polycarp to the proconsul and the proconsul began to interrogate him. And he tried his best to get Polycarp to deny his faith in Jesus and get him to worship the emperor. And Polycarp refused. And he spoke these now famous words. Eighty and six years I have served him. And he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Well, the prefect threatened to throw Polycarp to the wild beast, but Polycarp was unmoved. So the prefect threatened to burn him at the stake, to which he responded, You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season, and after a little while is quenched, but you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. So, The wood was gathered and Polycarp willingly stood in the middle of that wood pile. Normally they would nail someone to a stake so they wouldn't try to jump out of the flames. Polycarp said, there's no need to nail me. The God who gives me strength will give me the strength to stand in the midst of the flames. And so they didn't nail him. He just stood there with his hands bound in the middle of the wood pile as they lit the wood on fire. And as the fire was lit And the flames began to grow. He prayed this one last prayer. I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour so that in the company of the martyrs, I may share the cup of Christ. Still to this day, Polycarp is recognized as one of the most influential martyrs in the 2000 year history of Christianity. His sacrifice impacted millions for Jesus Christ. Well, in the last part of verse 10 and in verse 11, Jesus makes two promises to the Smyrna Christians. Number 1, they will receive the victor's crown. Number 2, they will be given eternal life. 
Polycarp understood well that if he fought the good fight and finished the race and kept the faith, he would receive the victor's crown from Jesus Christ. And he understood well that he would be given eternal life. And so I think we can leave with this wonderful, wonderful insight. The promises Christ made to Polycarp and to the other faithful Christians in Smyrna are promises to you and me as well. Like Polycarp, we must not be afraid. We must pass the test and we must be faithful if God finds us worthy even to the point of death. To God be the glory. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you for the amazing example of the Christians in Smyrna who were faithful in enduring persecution. They were faithful in enduring slander. They were faithful in enduring even the greater difficulties and persecution that were coming down the pike. Thank you, Lord, for this church that despite their poverty, despite the persecution, despite the hardships, despite having many of them to lay down their very lives and be consumed in the flames or being torn apart by wild beasts, thank you for their faithfulness. And Lord, we are a little bit oblivious to true persecution here in America. But I believe, Lord, the heat is being turned up in the kitchen. And Lord, we will, as days go by, be persecuted more and more for our faith. I pray that like Polycarp, you would count us faithful to stand the test. That you would count us faithful to be able to face persecution and suffering for the cause of Christ. Help us, Lord, to stay true to you no matter what the world throws at us. Help us to endure poverty. Help us to endure crushing blows. Help us to endure slander. Help us to endure whatever's coming down the pike. For your honor and glory and the advancement of your kingdom here on earth. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you're here today, I mean, you've never put Jesus Christ in charge of your life. You know what? I've tried to be really honest with you, especially in recent months. Following Jesus, as you see in this example of the church at Smyrna, following Jesus can be really hard, but there's no better way to live than living for Jesus Christ, your Savior and Lord. If you've never made that decision to follow Him, I encourage you to put Jesus in the driver's seat of your life. Don't forget those ABCs. A, admit that you are a sinner and that you need the grace and forgiveness of the Savior, Jesus Christ. B, believe that Jesus is God's Son and your only way to be saved, your only way to be forgiven, your only way to be right with God. And C, choose to follow Jesus, not just as your Savior, but as the Lord of your life beginning today. Put Him in the driver's seat of your life beginning right now. If you've made that decision, we'd love to pray with you. We'd love to talk with you. Please reach out to one of our prayer counselors. Their names and phone numbers are at the bottom of your screen. Reach out to one of us by phone or text, and we'd love to share with you how you can begin following Jesus Christ even today. And if you just need prayer, you reach out to one of our counselors as well. We'd love to pray with you today. Once again, you can reach out by phone or by text. Well, the church at Smyrna has raised the bar for us, haven't they? We need to be faithful no matter what the world throws at us. 
We need to be faithful. We need to stand firm in our faith. We need to be true to Jesus Christ, no matter what comes our way. And we can do that by the grace and the strength of Jesus Christ, our Lord. May God bless you as you take a stand for Jesus and serve him this week.